1: Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, Emerging Perspectives on People, Process, and Profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood.
2: Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today I'm very excited to have as my guest, John Spence, and we're going to be talking about how to make the very complex awesomely simple. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about John. He is a best-selling author, thought leader, and business visionary. Twice John was named one of the top 100 business thought leaders in America by the group Trust Across America, and he's been recognized by that same organization on their global list of the top 100 thought leaders in in the area of trustworthy business behavior. John is author of four books, including the book Awesomely Simple, and co-author of several more He's lectured at many universities across the U.S. and serves as an instructor at the Entrepreneurial Master's Program at MIT, and he currently serves as Director of Best Practice Innovation for the Best Practice Institute. John, I feel very honored to have you here today. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights.
3: Well, thank you, Olivia. It's my pleasure and my honor to be here.
2: Thank you. So, when I first saw your approach to complexity, I found it really refreshing. I think many people, especially leaders and managers in large organizations, find themselves overwhelmed by complexity. So, just the boldness of your statement that you can make it awesomely simple really intrigues me. And my hope on today's show is that you can do just that, make complexity awesomely simple. But first... Uh, let's. I'd love you to share. What are some of the symptoms of complexity? How do we know when we're mired in it? And why do you think it keeps accelerating?
3: Well, d- incredibly great question with a, a, a fairly uh, a complex answer. which I'll try to make simple. <laughs> uh, it's there's several factors all you know converging at the same time. Obviously, there is the incredible velocity of change and speed through technology. Uh, there 's also the idea that we we just in the last decade or so have truly gone to a global competitive platform. Um, I, I live in Gainesville, Florida, tiny little college town, but you know I compete on it literally with every other speaker and consultant in the world and a lot of businesses through the internet now. Uh, compete globally, even if they are a local company. And then and in the last few years with the recession, uh, a lot of companies have downsized and, and you know, got rid of headcount. So what happens? You have more people or less people doing more stuff at a faster pace mm. on a larger scale than ever before. And that's fairly complex.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think even the technology brings in a lot of complexity in actual Job descriptions, so people have to be so much more specialized now, which adds to the complexity.
3: And as soon as you get highly specialized, uh, if you focus for a week or two, you've fallen behind.
4: <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's
3: it's a con. It's a well, you know, and there and then. I I just I've been teaching at the Wharton School of Business now for about 14 years. I teach a class on strategy and strategic strategic thinking. Oh. And we've had a robust discussion the last few years about the death of sustainable competitive advantage. That. You know, it used to be 10 years ago, you could maybe get 18 months or two years of competitive advantage in the marketplace. You're lucky if you get 18 days or two weeks now uh, with a speed of change, how fast people can copy you, prototyping the internet, uh, ubiquitous pricing information. It's hard now to keep up with the marketplace that moves so fast.
2: Yeah, and I guess globalization adds to that, that we don't really have protections in some of the other countries. so. We really have to be smart about it, too, I guess.
3: Yeah, smart and strategic.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's great. So, I'm going to dig a little bit more into your personality because I think you have an amazing resume. When you were, um, you mentioned in your bio that you were running a very large, and I imagine very complex organization by the time you were 26 when you were named CEO of the, of a Rockefeller Foundation overseeing projects in 20 countries and reporting directly to the chairman of the board, W.P. Rockefeller III. i like to know if you think the fact that you were young gave you an advantage, and, and maybe what are some other traits that you think made and make you so successful?
3: Well, that's kind of you to say it that way. Well, I think there were some huge disadvantages to being young, but one of the greatest advantages... <laughs> was complete naivete. I mean, I mm. I remember read, picking up Tom Peters' In Search of Excellence book, reading it, and going, well, I'll just go back to the office and do this. Yeah. <laughs> ah. just, just didn't seem like, it was, you know, hey, we can do this. It's only seven or eight things. Um, and then I had a huge advantage of also having an incredibly, incredibly talented staff mm. that uh, were all very bright as well. Uh, and then I had, a, I had some advantages there that very few people get, a, get in their lives. Mr. Rockefeller once, um, and, and it was a, a strange situation how I ended up. I was the interim CEO while they were looking for a new one. <laughs> then the new one didn't work out. They put me in as interim again, and, and things were going so well, they just left me in, and I became the official CEO. But uh, Mr. Rockefeller uh, assigned his right-hand man, a gentleman named Charlie Owen, to be my mentor. And Charlie did two amazing things. Uh, number one is every Monday he would give me a book and on Friday I would meet him for lunch and and I would have to make a book report and I would have to tell him what I'd read, what I'd learned, what I'd studied. But most important, he would say, what are the three things you're going to apply? Uh, The theory's nice, John, the learning's nice. What are you going to do about it? And I would tell him he would write that down and then he would say, you will now be held accountable for doing that in your job. Here's another book. So for wow. six years, every Monday, I got a book. Every Friday, I made a book report. But the most important thing there is I was held accountable for actually turning the ideas I was learning into action. Uh, and then the other thing is they, they were fantastic at putting me in over my head and just dropping me in situations. I mean, they, I remember when I was, just got it started, they put me in to help negotiate a $380 million deal <laughs> And I, w- I wasn't allowed to talk, <laughs> but I sat at the table, took notes, did stuff, and then they debriefed me after and said, What would you have done differently? What, what did you notice about the other side? So I got amazing, amazing exposure and experience at a very young age.
2: Wow. So, were they, did they have you in the room to learn about? you or were they actually hoping your knowledge would affect what they were going to do or both I'm just curious if you know they were there they were
3: there to mentor me Mm -hmm. and to coach me and the thing is is they didn't want me to to blow up a deal you know like that right being so young so I I was you know and this was the particular one I'm talking about wasn't even in the organization I was running it was another company that Mr. Rockefeller owned Uh, and they were there just to say we're gonna let you sit in on a very large deal mm-hmm. and watch how it's done Got and it. learn and take notes and listen. And then what Charlie would do is say, all right, let's pretend you were running it. What, have you, what would you have done differently? What questions would you have asked? When the other side asked this question, what did you think they were looking for? Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a learning by seeing. Mm-hmm. And then he also let me learn by failure too.
2: <laughs> well, that's important, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, Absolutely. So I do want to ask you, you said you had a huge talented staff were there varied ages were there people that were quite a bit older, and how did you deal with it if there were
3: well you know that's a um, <clears throat> that's a great question it's true I, I was managing people at the time that had been in business longer than I had been alive yeah <laughs>
2: so exactly
3: I, yeah I, what I learned to do is I didn't you know I learned I, I wasn't going to tell them what to do or how to do mm. that my job with their help and the board's help was to set a clear compelling well-communicated vision, a clear strategy for growth, uh, lean on my strengths and lean on and, and where I had weaknesses to ask them for help, mm-hmm. to have a lot of open, honest, robust communication, a lot of transparency. And when, especially with people that were older than me, uh, we just set exceedingly clear expectations for performance uh, so that there was never me telling them I didn't think they did a good job or didn't feel like they were living up to standards. Mm-hmm. It was just binary. It was clear. They either did it or they didn't. So that took a lot of the emotion, politics, age difference out of it. Yeah. And I would always get the, my, the employees that were senior in age to me to set their own goals. So again, it wasn't the kid telling them what to do.
4: Right.
3: Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and it, and it worked for the most part, it worked exceedingly well. Um, because they knew I had some skill sets that they, that they didn't have. And one of the major skill sets, the reason that the CEO before me had left was inability to handle the pressure of answering to a handful of billionaires. Um, <laughs> we had several people on our board that were billionaires, several more that were worth more than $100 million. Um, Greg Norman, the golfer, was on my board. And, and these folks had really high expectations and did not tolerate mediocrity. Mm. And it put a lot of pressure on the senior executive. And for some reason, I, I could handle that pressure.
2: Wow, what an interesting, I guess, synchronicity of talent and opportunity. And I, um, yeah, I just think that that was so amazing. And what you've learned, you've been able to actually give back by sharing the knowledge from it. So um, I'm grateful for that experience you had as well. <laughs> so we have, oh, maybe five minutes before the break. I know um, a lot of what I'd love to hear about today are your six key strategies that you say will create a foundation for achieving business excellence in a highly complex economy. So I'd love you to share these strategies and maybe examples, maybe we can get through one or two, maybe uh, before the break. Um, and, and I'd love examples of companies that have used them based on your uh, insights.
3: Cool. Well, uh, I, I've boiled them all down to an even smaller formula, but we'll go through the six steps here. Okay. Um, and I'll, I've, I've actually had to pick up one of my own books to remember them. <laughs> the, um, I've got it here in front of me. The first one is vivid vision, and you and you heard me say it earlier. I use very specific language when I describe that because it comes from a Harvard study that uh, called the four plus two study of the Evergreen uh, Project, which was superb in looking at what are the key strategies of the world's top companies. And the very first one is a clear vivid well communicated vision and strategy for growth and i think if you look at any major company but you know for for me a lot of drug companies do this well because they they have such a large impact on people's lives so you look at something like a genentech or uh, the other side in the medical field maybe a, um medtronics they have the ability to create a very compelling very uh... engaging vision and then, because they have good senior leaders, they also have a clear strategy to achieve that vision, which lets everybody know, you know, what direction we're moving in, what's my responsibility, what's my role in this, how do I contribute to the overall success of the organization.
2: Well, that makes sense, and I everything I've learned too about setting goals is be so specific and measures, and um, yeah, no, nothing vague or or you won't it won't happen. So yeah, I learned
3: a great cool. phrase from one of my friends in New Zealand. A, a top consultant named Simon Mundell. and I love this phrase ambiguity breeds mediocrity
2: mm. yeah <laughs> so succinct and so yeah. accurate so that's great so um, okay so that's the first one what's the second strategy
3: second one is best people and for most people listening to this uh, radio broadcast the the you know the they're the things they used to compare, to focus on for competitive advantage, product price, place promotion. A lot of that stuff's gone by the wayside. Here's what I would say, and I believe this pretty strongly, that for most companies, the only sustainable competitive advantage left is the quality of the people that you get, grow, and keep on your team and the relationships they create with their customers. Talent and engagement are major, major competitive advantages. Uh, And companies like Google or Zappos, or Microsoft, and we could go down the list. And I think Google is probably the best example, have understood that Uh, talent can drive success. They could increase, I'm sure that they, and they continue to try to increase on their building strong relationships.
2: Well, I couldn't agree more, which is sort of the premise for my show, is that the human capital now is where you get your competitive advantage. And I had a guest last week, Barbara Corcoran, who said... That if they saw talent, they would hire the person and make a position. So, what do exactly. you think of that? Yeah. Um, and, and they, have,
3: they actually, I, I know that at uh, Amazon, they have a person that's called the raise the bar person that sits in on interviews. And it's their job to make sure that every new hire they bring in raises the bar of talent at Amazon. And if, if they interview and they're not right for the position, but their talent, they make a position for them. I have a good friend that just left Microsoft that that happened to her. They said, you're not right for what we were looking for, but you're so incredibly talented. We're going to find someplace or create someplace to get you on our team. And they did.
2: Boy, that is so smart. Really. So do you know, I'm just curious about, are you familiar with some of the assessment processes? Do you think, Oh, yes. Do you think they work actually for finding this kind of talent? I help? think
3: that there. I think that if you use a handful of assessments around uh, persistence, around talent, around uh, team teamwork and ability to communicate with others, EQ, IQ, mm-hmm. that those can at least give you one data point or several data points, mm-hmm. uh, and then you look at cultural fit, and then for me, you look at attitude. Um, are they excited? Are they engaged? Are they um, uh, passionate about the field? If you if I've got someone with lots of great skills that's extremely passionate, that has a great attitude and seems to have a values fit, then I know that if they've got the aptitude, I can pretty much teach them anything. But if they've got a bad attitude or they're not a good values fit or, or they're not excited, there's nothing in the world I can do to fix that.
2: Well, wow, that's true. In fact, my background's in data analysis and I enjoy that. But this is really my passion is this you know, understanding what makes companies successful based on the human capital, so I completely get that. That's great.
3: Uh, I saw a statistic the other day that said that for every highly actively disengaged employee you have, act they don't like their job and they don't like their work, multiply their salary by 15 times, and that's what you're losing. Really? Yep. That's yep.
2: fascinating. And scary. <laughs> well, and I think its it's all... It's related to the fact that we can't micromanage people anymore. So if they don't have their own drive, they're probably not contributing. You can't maybe tell right away, but over time I would think you would be able to pick that up, Uh, but it could be quite costly. Uh, Do you think that makes sense?
3: Well, yeah, that's why one of the things I always say is hire slow and fire fast. And I was actually speaking with a a colleague of mine in Russia and she says, "I, I hire mean and fire nice. I'm very aggressive in the interviewing process. I really push them, you know, put them through the ringers and everything. And then if they don't work out, I treat them extremely well as I exit them out of the business so that they always speak well of us and think well of us. So <laughs> hire slow, fire fast, or hire mean, fire nice.
2: <laughs> oh gosh, those are great. And I love very succinct <laughs> rules because they're they're just easy to follow. And if you think about, well, people that I know of people who will actually fire people but make them feel like they had a promotion by saying your skills are so amazing and here's a place to go <laughs> look for a place you know the, the right position for you which I think it's the way it should be you know I think everybody has something to contribute it just might not be a good fit so
3: yeah and I I, I was working with a client not too long ago and I had one of their managers and this was a very large company say John you don't understand we're held hostage by our our mediocre employees. Mm. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, I don't have anybody else to hire. I don't know anybody else that's better. I don't have anybody standing there waiting to to replace this person. So you know, if I fire them, I either have no one to do the job or I got to hire someone that's just as bad or worse, which to me indicates that they're not taking talent as a strategic objective and spending the time, energy, and resources necessary to build a great pipeline of talent, which allows them to up constantly upgrade if they need to until they get to a place that pretty much across the board, they've got top talent in all the positions they need.
2: Yes. I'm so glad you said that because I've also been hearing about a practice where every year companies will just routinely get rid of the lower performing 10% or something like that. It's
3: called top grading. GE used it for years. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think the top grading is good in a large bloated company mm. when you know that you've got a, a whole bunch of DNF players that have been hanging on for a long mm. time. Uh, and even GE said that after about three or four years, we had to sort of stop the practice because we were starting to, to cut into the bone. We were starting to get to the good people. But, you know, we had several hundred thousand, now uh, several and we needed to call out 80 or 100,000. It's amazing when you talk about it that way. <laughs> it but even in a small business, you know, you always have to realize that, if you if just clearly picture the lowest performing person in your organization, and realize that they set the standard of excellence for everyone else.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, we are up to the break, uh, so I just want to reintroduce my guest, John Spence. We're talking about making the very complex awesomely simple. You can get more information about John at his website, John Spence. And also check out his great blog, and we'll be back in a few minutes.
5: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business A Great Place to Work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights.
2: Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, John Spence, and we're talking about making the very complex, awesomely simple, And before the break, we talked a little bit about what's leading to complexity and and what are some of the skills to manage it. And then we got into the six strategies for achieving business excellence in complexity. So we had vivid vision and getting the best people. So I'd love you just to continue with those strategies uh, of how to be successful in a complex economy.
3: Sure. the uh, the next one is one that's become even more important. If you had asked me eight or nine years ago what was the single biggest factor I saw with problems and clients I worked with, it was lack of that vivid, well communicated vision and strategy,
4: mm-hmm. this
3: third one is would have been the the next one, which was robust communication. Mm. And the idea around this is pretty very is very simple, very clear, is is transparency, honesty, you know clarity. Uh, It's one of my favorite business axioms that people without access to information do not have to take accountability for their actions. If you can go up to somebody in your company and go, how are you doing on the Jones Project? And they go, what are you talking about? Nobody talked to me. And that's true. You can't hold them accountable. But if you say, no, 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 no. You were in the team meeting, You were on, I had a one-on-one with you, I sent you the spreadsheets, I sent you the project, I sent you an email, we talked about this on the phone, you have all the information I have, then you can hold them accountable at a very high level. So, knowledge is not power. Sharing knowledge allows you to empower other people and that's where you gain real power as a manager and a leader.
2: That makes so much sense. And I also noticed in my experience that different departments might speak different languages. So, IT will talk in one way and marketing might speak a different way. And they, they probably have the same goals, but they can't even communicate. And that's why I think having a very vivid vision at the top is helpful. But have you seen that also in your experience?
3: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it's, it's funny. I had a president of a company ask me once, John, when have you talked about this, you know, vision, mission, value stuff enough? I said, when you get to the point that if you have to say it one more time, you're going to get sick, the lowest person in your organization just heard it for the very first time. And when you've got a complex organization with multiple divisions, and you've got marketing and IT and finance and everything else like that, you're absolutely right, Olivia. They speak completely different languages. And you know you can yell at them in your language, but it's like me yelling at you in German if you're Chinese. There's no yeah. crossover, just loudness. <laughs> and <laughs>
2: Exactly.
3: And so it's, it's the ability of the leader to, to be the sort of, um, what do they call that, the person, the translator between mm-hmm. those departments and the translator of the vision, mission, and values in the appropriate words to the appropriate departments, and then showing them how it works in the other departments, and especially how it works with the customer.
2: Right. And I think the thing that is important as well is making sure, let's say that the uh, People in IT understand the importance of the people in marketing being successful as well.
3: Do you agree? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's one of the hard, I'm actually working on a project right now uh, for somebody where it, it's just the the different departments don't understand the value of the other departments. They, of course, think their department is absolutely the most <laughs> important uh, and that the entire company would come to a grinding halt if they weren't there. Mm. Uh, and they think very little of the other departments. So this is a global company. This is a Fortune 50 company I'm talking about. So it's a large, complex organization.
4: Mm-hmm. And we're
3: trying to bring two of the departments that are integral to the success of the organization together and actually make them realize that the other department does add value because even in a fortune 100 company where you've got a lot of resources and bright people these two departments just totally don't want to work together and, and you're sort of the ceo is saying it's not that's not really how it works in the real world we all have to work together we're in the same company the same team and we're headed in the same direction
2: right uh i can imagine that that's so do, in those cases do they look at the people? I would think perhaps there's a couple personalities driving this division. Am I guessing correctly? or is You're that- guessing
3: correctly that it's the managers of yeah. the two divisions who, who set the tone, who set the example. And the example they set is we don't deal with that other department. Don't worry about them. That's their problem. They'll fix it on their own. And when your manager who has two or three or four hundred people underneath them, that's their attitude. That attitude is per pervasive then throughout the entire part of their organization so it's getting those managers together and making them uh, play nice and see the value of each other before they can get the rest of their
2: people to do that yeah it's almost like you want to send them on a vacation together have them you know just spend time in nature or whatever to kind of See the humanity in the other person. I don't know. We're gonna it. do.
3: We're actually gonna get them to spend some some private time together and create a stronger bond of a relationship. Mm-hmm. But also, we're gonna send them to have one man try to manage the other guy's one, and the other one manage the other gals' one for about a week, and say you get to go live in their world for a week, see what it's like.
2: Oh, that is so smart. That's great. I actually worked for a credit card bank, and one of the big tensions. Always in those banks is risk versus marketing, and one of the brilliant things they did is they took the head of marketing and made him head of risk for. He, he'd been in one job for three years, and then he went to the other, and it, it was so good for us in marketing because we knew that risk respected what we did. You know, the way to reduce risk is not to make any loans, but
4: <laughs> you don't make any
2: money either. So, um, so I, uh, I, I really think that's smart, and uh, it's good. Well. We'll find well, out. We'll maybe. see how it plays out. <laughs> and, and come back on the show. You can share about the result. That's great. Well, so, okay. We're up to three. What's uh, number, number four? Number four is
3: sense of urgency.
4: Mm.
3: And there's, a, there's something that I need to clarify here. This isn't speed. It's urgency. There's a difference. Uh, the, the idea here is to move as quickly as you possibly can in a professional and reasonable manner. I'm not talking about running around the building, everybody jogging from place to place with their hair on fire. (laughs) Uh, But what I'm talking about is being able to make decisions quickly, take actions quickly, and have a bias towards action, not a bias towards bureaucracy. And we go back to the vision, mission, values, and it's another one of my very favorite quotes. It's actually a Walt Disney quote. When values are clear, decisions are easy.
4: Mm.
3: So the idea here is to create a, create a bias for action, a sense of urgency, and to empower that through your people by having very clear, specific, measurable goals, vision, values, so that people know quickly what they're supposed to do, what's most important, what the priority is, how they're supposed to behave, what they're supposed to deliver, instead of spending all your time in meetings talking about what you talked about in the last meeting.
2: Well, that's fascinating because I trained with holacracy. I think this may actually be an agile principle but what I liked about it was that they they said that there's times when you just have to make the decision autonomously other times you want to get some kind of feedback but figuring out the when to do which one is really the talent here does that make sense
3: yeah, let me share a tool with you I used when I was really a, a young manager, when I just started taking over at the, at the Rockefeller Foundation I worked at. I had a fairly large staff. And in the very beginning, I, I thought it was so cool that they were all coming to me for answers. <laughs> uh, you know, like I'm in charge. I have yeah. all the power. You know? yeah, really. Until I looked out my office one day and realized there was a line of people waiting down the hallway to get me to make decisions for them. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was the bottleneck. I was the one holding the whole place back. Oh, that's- so I brought everybody together and I said, here's what we're going to do from now on. We're going to have four levels of decisions. Four levels. Level one. You make the decision on your own immediately. That's what I pay you for. That's what your area of expertise is. You don't need any help in this. This fits right in your bailiwick. Level one decision, completely your decision, and you have 100% accountability for it. That's level one. Level two, you probably need to get some input from somebody else, but this is... This is also your decision, and you will take accountability for it. And it doesn't necessarily mean to be need to be me as the CEO. It could be run over to the marketing department, run to the finance department, run down to our our membership department, whatever it might be. Find the appropriate person or people, get their input and feedback, and then you make the decision and you own it. That's level two.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Level three is team decision. We're all going to make this. We're going to get the again not everybody, but we'll get the appropriate people on the staff together. People that understand the problem, that have a, that have a say in the outcome, that will be affected by the decision. We'll put them in a room. We'll all sit down and we'll decide together. And whatever the team decides is what we will do, even if I as the CEO don't agree. Hmm. So I'm back if the team really wants to do this, I'm gonna back all of you guys. This is a team decision. I trust all of you to make a good decision. And if I think differently, but you know, it's it's not something that's catastrophic, I'll let you guys make the decision and I'll go with you. Mm -hmm. Which leads us to the last one, which is a level four decision, which is, this is my decision. I can make it by myself if I want to. I might get some input from other people. I might listen to the team. I might get some feedback. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make the decision and I will own it. But I need you guys to trust me. That I'm making the very best decision I can for the entire organization. And then for the next month or two, anytime somebody walked in my office, I go, no, 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 level one, level one, level one, go away. You know, and so I'm going to go, level two, not me. Go talk to Jim, the C- CFO. I don't have anything to do with the numbers. You know, that's level two, but not me. Very rarely did we have a level three decision and ex- exceedingly rarely did I have to pull rank over the entire organization and make a level four decision. And what I found out was about 60% of the decisions were level one or level two, and I didn't even need to be involved, And which t- took a tremendous amount of people. It took everybody from standing in the hallway to actually going back to their offices and making things happen.
2: That's amazing. So when they first started to come, did do you have to judge the level? And then after a while, they kind of learned it? How did that yep. work?
3: That was exactly it. They come in and ask me about it. I go, no, no, that's that's a level one decision. That's something you should be able to handle without any input. They go, oh, okay. And after four or five times, they realize pretty much anything in this arena, this is something I got to make the decision. John trusts me. He's fully empowered me. I have the resources. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and make this decision and I'll own it. And yeah, they, they would learn. I d- I've done the same thing with emails, with um, staff and with clients of, you know, I don't need to see this. So I, you know, they, i I say, every time you send me an email, I'm going to send you back either yes or no. Yes, this is something I should see, or no, I don't need to know about this. And, you know, so for two or three weeks, it's yes, no, 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 yes, yes, no, no. Eventually, (laughs) they realize about 80% of the stuff I've been copying John on is stuff he's not even reading.
2: (laughs) Interesting. Well, that's great. So I do have another question about making decisions. I, I feel there's something here that a lot of CEOs have and I think good managers and that's intuition. What do you think about that or, or your sense of it
3: here? That's a great question. And I, and probably five years ago, I would have told you, I didn't believe in that at all.
2: <laughs> okay, uh,
3: I'm a very logical, uh, strategy driven guy to, you know, boom, give mm-hmm. me the data, do that. But here's what I've learned as I've gotten, I just turned 50. So I've been in, in doing business now for 20 something years. Um, Here's what I do. I believe that the best way to make a good decision is is to have a decision-making process. And what I mean by that is a checklist of questions and a checklist of things you go through before you make the decision. You know, when do I really have to make this decision? Do I have to make it today? I mean, do I do I, or can I make it next Tuesday? Because mm-hmm everybody on this that's listening has made decisions on a Friday and said, wow, if i had only waited till <laughs> Tuesday, I would have made a completely different decision. Yep. Uh, so what, you know, or the reverse is you make the decision, you, you think you're going to make the decision on Tuesday and the marketplace makes the decision for you on Friday. Mm. So one of the first questions is what is truly honestly the real time frame for this decision? When do I truly have to make it? Number two is who? Uh, what are the what are the resources impacted? What's the numbers? What's the data? And is it reliable? And I could go down about who needs to be in the decision, what's the ripple effect, you know, who will take accountability. But I think you need to to check that list off, especially in big decisions, just to analytically look at it and say, what's the facts here? Mm-hmm. Once you get through that, I, I am beginning to trust, and I, I've heard this from many senior leaders, that they will often make an intuitive decision that it that flies in the face of the facts but they feel so strongly about it based on their experience. They just know that something's going to go wrong or something's going to go right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they make an an educated experience based guess. But I think if you, I think uh, the flip side of that is many managers and leaders just make the intuitive decision, the gut decision immediately. Uh, Boom. I mean, I, I sat in a meeting once where I I watched a senior leader go, So, uh, what do you think we're going to do in Europe this year, Bob? And Bob goes, I don't know, somewhere between 40 and 60 million. He put 52 up on the board. All right, Olivia, what do you think we're going to do in Latin America? And Olivia goes, "Uh, Somewhere between 10 and 20. Uh, Put 13 million on the budget. And I'm just going, Where are these numbers coming from? And you're actually, people's jobs will be controlled by these numbers you're just making up. That's not good decision making.
2: So, that. That's really powerful for me because I came out of this left brain analytic world. I have a master's in statistics and I have always had that sense of intuition and I think you've nailed it. It's getting all the information. One of the ways I've done this kind of brain research to understand is that our right brain, which I think is what we're accessing, can do a lot of nonlinear calculations, but we can't track it, Right. So, feeding in all the data and then letting the right brain kind of synthesize it over time, and I'm sure you've had this experience that a lot of people have where you can't solve a problem and then you'll go jogging or you're in the shower or you take a nap and all of a sudden the solution comes, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's the right brain working, and I think that's a lot of what we're tapping into with our intuition. So, it makes perfect sense that it's good to get the, the knowledge and the data first. That's that's Great. So that's four, so what's number five?
3: Number five is disciplined execution. Mm. Um, and another word I might use here is accountability, creating a culture of accountability or a culture of disciplined execution, uh, which is now the single largest problem I see in almost every client organization I work with around the world is there is no shortage of bright, sharp, smart, talented people that can come up with cool, innovative, you know nifty strategies. Mm-hmm. But taking those strategies and figuring out a way how to implement them and execute with discipline, huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that class I referred to that I say I teach at Wharton every year, every year I ask my, the people in my class, and it's a senior executive class, I get about 100 to 120 senior executives in there. I always ask them, what percentage of companies that know how, you know, that have a good strategy, they know how to win in the marketplace, they've figured out what it takes to win, how many of them effectively execute their strategy? And the answer for all these years has been ten to fifteen percent.
2: Boy, what an opportunity <laughs> if they could yeah, just exactly, master exactly. it. exactly. Exactly.
3: And um, actually, it was Apple that asked me to put together a program for them on disciplined execution and accountability. And they are that—that that is a client that demands simplicity.
4: <laughs> mm, right. <They> want
3: everything is <laughs> elegant and as simple as you can possibly get it. And I was able to get pretty much everything I learned about accountability and execution down to five key steps. And I'll share those with you very quickly. If you want to create a culture of accountability in your organization where people keep their business promises, there's five key steps. Step one is 100% clarity plus appropriate authority. You've got to sit down with that person that you're going to hold accountable for this really important project. And you've got to get exceedingly clear on the expectations, the measures, the metrics, the timeline, the resources, uh, what success looks like, and as much as possible, and you'll love this, it needs to be binary. Mm-hmm. Yes or no, black or white, one or zero, no guessing, no ambiguity. Then you have to make sure that they have enough authority and resources to actually deliver that. So mm-hmm. step one is 100% clarity plus 100 plus appropriate authority. Step two then is 100% agreement. The person has to look you in the eyes and say... I clearly understand the metrics, the measurements, the timeline, the budget. You've given me the appropriate resources. You've given me the appropriate authority. I believe this is a reasonable and achievable goal. I accept accountability for it. Until you have those two, you cannot create a true culture of accountability and disciplined execution. Uh, And it's been my experience that about 90% of companies don't do those two really, really, really well. Um, Step three, then, is track and post. If you're going to hold someone accountable for achieving goals, you've got to let them know where they stand against those goals. So you've got to track all the goals and post them. And the two key ideas behind this tracking or dashboarding is to make it super, super easy to understand and highly visible Mm. so that everybody knows exactly what it means and everybody knows where everybody stands on the most important goals. Now what happens then is everybody freaks out because they think that – tracking equals punishment. They're doing this to catch me, not doing my job so they can yell at me. So that's where step number four comes in, which is coach, mentor, and train. Mm. So that the minute somebody starts to fail, you don't rush in and yell at them. You rush in immediately. People parachute in from the sky to say, how can we help you? What can we do to assist you? How can we get you back on track immediately? What coaching, mentoring, training, help, resources, so that you can change that paradigm from Tracking equals punishment to tracking equals help. And then people love tracking. And then the fifth and final step is to celebrate success lavishly. And by lavishly, I don't mean throw money at them, but celebrate big and small wins. And when someone's truly great at holding themselves accountable and delivering results, make sure that they're well rewarded for that and that everyone knows that that behavior is good. And then you got to deal decisively with mediocrity.
2: Oh, those are great. And I especially like the last one because I think we don't have enough of that. In some organizations where people are actually celebrated, and like you say, it doesn't have to be money, but just acknowledgement. People they know now work up to a certain point for money, and after that, it, they, they're much more motivated by just being appreciated. So oh, well, I can great. tell you,
3: I, I, did a, I, did a, I did a big research study, uh, proprietary research study with 10,000 high-performance employees at top companies around the world, and I asked them, why do you work where you work? You're really, really good. You could quit at 9 a.m. You'd have a job at the competition by noon. You are a stellar employee, so you have a lot of options. Why do you choose to work here? And here's basically what they told me. Number one, it wasn't necessarily the number one, but I'll list as number one, was just fair pay. Not exorbitant pay, but the way it's defined is 10% above or below what they would make to do the same job anyplace else. Mm-hmm. As long as you can get in that 10% above or below to what they would make to do the exact same job someplace else, Pay becomes parity and it comes off the table as motivator. Then they said, I want to I do challenging work that's, that challenges me professionally and is rewarding. I want to work with cool colleagues that I like and enjoy. I want to work in a great culture that celebrates success where we, we focus on catching people doing things right.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: I want to have a chance for growth, both personal and professional growth. And last but not least, I want to work for a boss I admire. That's what people who are really, really good want from their job
2: oh, those are great oh, that's great information to have I and it's it's certainly borne out in my experience and in the research so thank you so we are up on our second break and again my guest today is John Spence you can check out his website johnspence.com he's got all kinds of service offerings speaking great blog you can get access to his books So, I'm delighted to have him here today, and we'll be back in a few minutes.
5: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator, or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel business community's first choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
1: You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum
2: business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and uh, I'm with John Spence, my guest. Today, we're talking about making the very complex awesomely simple. And before the break, we were going through the six strategies for achieving business excellence in a highly complex economy. The first one being vivid vision, the second one the best get the best people. Third one is robust communication. The fourth one is a sense of urgency. The fifth one is disciplined execution. So, what is number six?
3: Number six is extreme customer focus. Uh, and I, I choose my words very carefully. Uh, when I when I say extreme, I mean you really. Well, here's here's my. F- my favorite, this is one a soapbox I jump up and down on all the time. <laughs> whoever owns the voice of the customer owns the marketplace. Whoever understands their customer the best, who's, who's ever connected them uh, emotionally, physically, uh, technologically, whoever ha- you know, is truly listening to and understands their customers, that's one of the major competitive advantages you can create. It's, it's like building an economic moat around your business because that's exceedingly hard to copy uh, or steal.
2: Great. So, who do you think's doing that well?
3: Oh, there's. Oh, wow, that's a great question. There's. A, there's several companies that do it well. I think Zappos does this extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Nike does this pretty well. Um, I'm trying to think who else to, who just does a great job. Uh, you stump me because I would have to think about that for a minute. But well, let's put it the other way. My inability to list a long list quickly off the top of my head shows you how I view
4: this.
3: (laughs) Um, Almost every organization I work with does not do nearly a good enough job. Most of them do, uh, and I love my clients, but they do a pathetic job uh, of actually truly figuring out multiple ways to listen to, understand, uh, and empathize with their customers. And any business could do it better, but... Most do it pretty poorly, and it's unbelievably powerful. It's, it's my strong belief that if you will just listen to the people that pay all the bills, they will tell you what they want to spend more money on. Now, it doesn't mean they're always right, and I know that everybody listening to this thinks, "What about Steve
4: Jobs? You know, he never
3: listened to the customer. He was one in four zillion. You know, I mean, he right. was just he was really unique. Most businesses don't have a visionary leader like a Steve Jobs that that is the personification of the customer he wanted to reach, and he just said, if I like it, they'll like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, most businesses would be better off if they did you know, at least some level of listening to the customer, owning the voice of the customer, understanding what's truly critical and important to the customer.
2: Yeah, and I really like the way you said empathize, because I remember having this realization that if I had a problem, let's say, I think one time I called my cell phone company and I had a complaint and they solved it, but they were very dismissive about my need and just made me feel bad. Uh, yeah. Well, I can't, I mean, I chose, but but the, my reaction to it wasn't good. And I thought about that, that I, I didn't feel satisfied, even though they solved the problem. Whereas then I had another experience where I called for something and they couldn't solve it, but they really said that they heard me. They were uh, sorry for the problem. Now that can get carried to an extreme too, which is annoying. But I think just genuine empathy and saying we're really working on trying to fix that, we appreciate your feedback, then I would be more likely to stay with that company, even if they didn't solve the problem. Yeah.
3: Well, there's a there's an idea that I teach that I think is one of the most mo- most profound and most powerful of anything I cover, and it's the idea of moments of truth mm-hmm. that. During your interaction with a with customer, and I always use restaurants as an example, there are hundreds of touch points. Is the temperature right? Is the music too loud? Is the, is my seat comfortable? Was there enough room in the parking lot? Was the sign big enough? You know, Did they greet me when I walked in the door? All of those are touch points. But for every restaurant on the foot, face of the earth, there's really only four moments of truth, four things that must be done flawlessly if you're going to become a a, a, a really strong patron of that restaurant, love it, become a customer evangelist. It's very simple. Food quality, service quality, price, cleanliness. Hmm. That's it. That's it. If if I go to a place that has awesome uh, service, I mean, great service, and the food quality is amazing and the price is really reasonable, but, you know, a giant rat jumps on my table in the middle of the meal, runs <laughs> around and, you know, like, I'm never going back there again, ever. So to me, it's important to listen to the voice of the customer and the most important thing you can understand are what are my companies, and every company has three or four or five key moments of truth, and even though I'm not a process guy per se, I know that if you want repeatable success, you must have process, and if there's anywhere in your business you want to build a robust and specific and well-trained process, it's around flawlessly delivering the moments of truth. If you nail those three or four or five things, you can mess a lot of other stuff up, but if you mess up any one of those, you lose the customer for life.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. So can you give an example maybe of another industry? What would be the moments of truth? Maybe in technology, for example.
3: Uh, well, in technology, it would be uptime, speed of resolution, ease of use, uh, and getting and, and being able to do what you need to do with it. So does the software accomplish the goal that I want? Is it easy to use? If it is, it up 99.9% of the time? And if it does break, does it get quick, fixed quickly? Mm. That's pretty much it. I mean, you can go through a bunch of these. You uh, know, dry cleaner. I need my food, my my uh, my clothes back on time, clean at a reasonable price. You know, if you charge yeah. me, if you burn them, I, you know, I, I don't need them. If you there's no buttons on them, if I show up on Tuesday and you say they won't be there till Thursday, if you charge me six hundred bucks to clean a shirt, none of these things work. But if you do those three things consistently, I'm even willing to drive a couple miles out of my way to deal with you because. I always get my clothes clean on time at a reasonable price. That's all I want from a dry cleaner.
2: That's that's really powerful and I would I would think you know going back to the very first uh, part of the show that this would be something for a company to actually figure out before they even set their vision and strategy.
3: Uh, It could go hand in hand. It depends on what stage they're starting up in. If it's a brand new startup, they could go to the marketplace and understand these moments of truth and build it into the vision, mission, and values. If they're a going concern, they've been up for years, they could re-examine those, then look at their vision, mission, values, and say, do these sync with what our customers expect? And here's one other last key thing on this, Olivia, is you have moments of truth internally as well. Not only do you have them with your customers, but but internal departments have them with each other because they're each other's customers. So it's not only what do we do flawlessly for the people outside of the business, but what do we have to do flawlessly for the people inside of the business to allow us to deliver those other things perfectly for the end customer?
2: Well, that's That makes so much sense. And I could see with some of my clients where that would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so we have about a minute and a half left. Um, you talked about a big struggle area for your company being the, uh, I think it was... Just understanding the customer, but do you have any other areas of struggle that you see in your in your clients
3: yeah uh, if, you, if I were to look across them and I, I do a, a business excellence workshop where I take companies in and run them through a whole day thing and I, I got the chance to do this with about twenty five companies last year, mm. and then they all came back this year and reported back what did we do differently here's what they said number one, we got a lot clearer on our on our core uh, metrics, what we needed to measure, and made sure we dashboarded. Number two, we listened to the voice of the customer much, much better. Number three, uh, we upgraded our talent. Uh, and then number four was the senior executives learned how to delegate better, uh, how to how to focus on the places where really only they could add value. And that's one thing I see that a, that a lot of executives and, and owners struggle with is, I'm juggling all these balls, and I got 100 things in the air. Mm. What I tell them is, you got to figure out which balls are rubber and which balls are glass. Yeah. Either hand the rubber balls off or let them drop, but do only what you can do stunningly and delegate everything else away. Otherwise, you will get to a level where you can no longer perform even the stuff you're great at well because you're so overwhelmed because there's so much complexity.
2: Well, so I have to ask, have you worked with companies where that the person in that role just could not give up control and either left or needed coaching around letting go of the control?
3: I have seen several people have their careers ended because of their inability to delegate. Yes, I, I've coached executives in very small and very, very, very large companies who insisted on having their hand in everything, and it, it cost them their careers.
2: Fascinating. Well... It looks like we're about out of time. John, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I hope you'll come back and visit us again.
3: Anytime. It was absolutely my pleasure, my honor. I enjoyed it. Great questions, and I hope that your uh, listeners got some good ideas, some good things they can implement.
2: Thank you. So next week, my guest will be Alison Conte, leadership advisor, management consultant, and master executive coach, and we'll be discussing feminine leadership, so you won't want to miss this. I'm your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights and have a great week.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, Noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.